Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan, and this is a carefully crafted devotional journey through the New Testament. Let's venture into deeper water as we consider what it means to follow Jesus in the world we live in now. Welcome to another episode of Devotions in the Deep End. In the last episode, we looked at the many areas of authority that Jesus was able to demonstrate in his early ministry. In this episode, we're going to look at a powerful story from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, up to this point, we know about four certain disciples. The fishermen we looked at a few episodes ago. If we follow John's account, we could possibly add Philip and Nathaniel as well. All of these six men knew each other and were all Galilean, salt-of-the-earth type of men. Galilee, in case you're wondering, was the northern state of Israel at that time under Roman rule. Matthew was from the same neighborhood too, but he was different. He was a special breed of man. And the role of a publican or a tax collector certainly needed that sort of special breed. Israel had been an unwilling part of the Roman Empire since 63 BC. And as a result, its citizens were required to pay taxes to Rome. Rome delegated that authority to local rulers, in this case, King Herod. He in turn would assign his local people the task of collecting the Roman taxes. In today's economy, we might call this privatization and job creation. But in Israel's economy, it was better known as being a corrupt sellout. The role of a tax collector was to collect the fees which were due to Caesar. These were the prescribed taxes, and these went on to fund a pretty good system of infrastructure and military and civil support that the whole empire had the chance to enjoy. The Roman government system actually did those things pretty well. The bit that made Jewish tax collectors despicable was the terms of their employment. He would get the job by being the highest bidder in the role. And he kept his job by maintaining his ability to fleece and extort additional funds from his own people over and above the prescribed tax amount. He would be doing very well for himself, but by profiting from the additional financial burden of the people around him. So I can imagine how Matthew would have come across to his countrymen. Whenever he would show up, all his former mates saw was the might of the ruling Roman Empire, giving this young Jew an unnecessary power trip. He was hated for the masters he served, and he was hated for the methods he used. And in the eyes of those more religious, his unethical association with the non-Jewish world made him an ungodly and unclean equal with his pagan employer. With that background, we then come to what Jesus sees in all this. Matthew sitting in his tax collection booth would have been a pitiful sight. Coin and produce sitting all around him. People walking by making no eye contact, offering minimal conversation. All transactions are being done with anger and cynicism. 
His only friends nowadays are the ones he hired for his own protection. This was truly a despised man. But here's the powerful thing. This is a despised man that Jesus takes personal interest in. There's no doubt Matthew was aware of Jesus. He would have gotten snippets of information about his many miracles and teachings. He might have had the chance to sneak in among the crowd and hear Jesus at the lake. But until now, all he would have known was a rabbi from afar. But now they were face to face. Jesus sees something in this man that no one else does. He sees past Matthew's callous and manipulative nature. He sees past the poor ethics and the inability to offer positive influence in anything he does. And perhaps to the surprise of the other disciples, he engages with Matthew using the same two words he spoke to the fishermen a few verses ago, follow me. Now that's a tough invitation for a tax collector. It's an invitation to leave what you know, leave the relative safety of the Roman system, leave the hired security and your empty position of power behind. Leave the prophets, leave the manipulation, leave the ungodliness, leave all of that behind. Jesus says to Matthew, this rabbi wants you, follow me. And the amazing thing is that Matthew did just that. He puts up the closed sign and walks right behind Jesus and joins the other disciples. No questions asked. Now, we don't read about every disciple's story in the Gospels but we do get a brief glimpse into some, and I think that's for good reason. The ones that are highlighted show us some very interesting things about the selection process of Jesus and who he wants to follow him. We've got good working class honest men who may have been overlooked by other rabbis. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, all these were seemingly good men in their neighborhoods. If the list stopped there, we could suggest a pattern that Jesus was giving the overlooked good guys a go. If you're not a churchgoer, you might feel that way about the average Christian even today. But then there's Matthew, the highly despised guy who was in cahoots with the enemy, the guy who essentially sold his soul to Rome for a quick dollar at the expense of all dignity and respect. And suddenly we find ourselves at a powerful point being made at this stage of the gospel story. We have two ends of a community but one single call. Friend, this is great news for all of us, no matter where we are coming from as we hear this today. Jesus only has one call, and that is, follow me. No matter where you are coming from, I hope you can take heart from that. We then read that Matthew is so taken with this new call that he throws a pretty huge party. He doesn't have a lot of socially acceptable friends, so the only people open to the invite were probably just his colleagues and some of the local characters who were really only there for the free food and wine. The Capernaum Synagogue? This was certainly not. A dinner with any religious significance wasn't really on the cards either. It's just Jesus, his first six disciples who may have been a little uncomfortable by now, then Matthew, then a horde of Matthew's shallow pool of nearest and dearest friends. And this is a really big deal. The Hebrew meal table was a picture of intimacy in action. This was Matthew opening his home and by extension, his heart. He's letting the very inner workings of his life be on display with the hope that Jesus would feel comfortable enough to engage in that setting. And this was Jesus accepting that invitation and sitting ever so comfortably with his new follower as well as the riffraff that walked in. 
The story then goes up a gear with the addition of a Pharisee-shaped wrinkle in the tail. Hopefully, you'll remember from the last episode that the Pharisees were those who taught Israel to stay squeaky clean in readiness for the arrival of the Messiah. Because tax collectors by necessity traded with non-Jews, the Pharisees deemed them to be ceremonially unclean. They weren't good enough to worship beside, not good enough to engage with as friends, and certainly not good enough to have a meal with. Which is why there is such an outrage when it appears they walk past Matthew's house and peer in the window. They would have gotten an eyeful. All the degenerates of the city, the traitorous tax collectors, the heavies they hired, the underbelly types, the dodgy dealers, these are all seated around a banquet table with a rabbi Jesus sitting right there in the middle of them. Some of the modern Bible translators have had some fun with this verse, particularly the response of the Pharisees to this outrage, because the original language is actually quite colorful in these verses. You may have a Bible in your hand that shows the Pharisee question as this, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Another one, words are like this, what kind of example is this from your teacher, acting cozy with crooks and riffraff? The original language presents the idea of a sinner here, which speaks of people who are deliberately wicked people who are stained with crimes or questionable actions, people who are unsavory characters, people with no morals or integrity. Even in the world we live in today, these are types of people we might have been taught not to be friends with. In the days of Jesus, the religious elite considered them beyond the reach even of God. But Jesus, who we believe was God, actually took a seat at their intimate table. These religious elites, the Pharisees, call out Jesus for his seemingly scandalous conduct. How dare he clothe himself as a holy man, a rabbi no less, and defile it by partying with the riffraff. But as we read on, we see that Jesus has a very different agenda here. He is at that table to do more than merely enjoy a good meal. In the response of Jesus, we see two key things to note. First, there is a sickness and there is a cure. Jesus says it's the sick that need a doctor, not the healthy. He was aware that he was sitting among spiritually unhealthy people. In the last episode, we saw clearly that Jesus was more concerned about the sin of mankind than its sickness. This was evident in the healings of both the leper and the paraplegic. The laid-back and relatable Jesus who willingly entered a sinner's house was still to be understood as a holy God. Jesus believed those he was sharing a meal with were in a place of desperate need. They were sick and he was on the earth as the cure for their greatest ailment, their sinful state. Jesus was saying here that the doctor was in and like you would expect out of any physician, he was getting around the sick to offer the treatment they needed. And the treatment Jesus had in mind was far greater than anything the Pharisees were able to speak of. That's evident in the next part of his answer. There is religion and there is mercy. Jesus goes hard at the religious elites here. He essentially says this, go back to your synagogue, find the scroll of the ancient prophet named Hosea, run your finger down about halfway and reread this verse, what we know as Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. Jesus flips things on its head here with a lesson for the Pharisees at a tax collector's dinner table. He says to them, God has your duty, but he doesn't have your devotion. He has your pursuit of holiness, but he doesn't have your heart. And because your energy is going into your religion instead of its outworking, 
you are missing the point. Jesus knew this to be true because of the treatment the Pharisees were prescribing. The Pharisees said, try harder and be more religious. But Jesus says, come to a place of intimate interaction, like Matthew's dinner table, and learn about mercy. Jesus says in this passage, I came to call sinners to repentance, not merely affirm the calling of the righteous. He was saying that if they expected a savior, a messiah even, then they should expect to see him among the ones in need of saving. Now, this is potentially where things can get really uncomfortable for some and joyfully comforting for others. We're getting a fuller understanding of what this rabbi Jesus is all about now. We're not just getting teaching lessons, but a glimpse right into his heart. Jesus, in this passage, describes himself with the metaphor of a physician. He came to earth to walk among terminally ill people and to offer the only remedy available to them. But they first had to realize they were ill. Two episodes ago, we saw that Peter certainly did. He fell at Jesus' feet in his own boat in front of his co-workers and acknowledged his state of illness. Here, Matthew realized his illness and opened his home to receive the treatment he needed. And he set it up as a hospice for other similarly sick people to come to. That illness is what Jesus called sin. We know about its terminal nature from verses like Romans chapter 6, verse 23, where it is written the wages or the payoff of sin is ultimately death. But there was a remedy, and Jesus walked among the sinners to make it readily available. Now, because Jesus came as a physician, he best remains in the places where sick people are. This has an application in the church big time. We see ourselves as the extension of the work of Jesus, so our hearts need to be in sync with his heart. The Pharisees and Jesus were clearly out of sync. When Jesus quotes Hosea, he is essentially saying that their body and his heart were not on the same page and not in the same place. Theirs was a religion of hollow proportions. They had lots of outward bells and whistles, but they'd lost their sound so long as they couldn't be merciful. They had a version of holiness, but it had no heart. They knew rules, but not the one who spoke them into being. They had tradition, but nothing to offer these dodgy dealers. Instead, they'd written these men off as irredeemable. If you've ever felt that way about God, please look at the key words that turn all this around. The ones from Jesus to a despicable sellout tax collector. I choose you. I have mercy. Follow me. And in response to this, always actively look for ways to extend mercy. Mercy is an outward manifestation of pity. It assumes the one who received it definitely needed it. It also assumes that the one who offered it could actually deliver. This is what Jesus does with Matthew here. And he offers mercy to all. And he most certainly can deliver on what he promises. And this is what Christians are called to offer others. Not because we have all the resources to make that happen. We don't. And we'll be worse than the Pharisees if we think that. But it's because we know where this mercy comes from. We offer the mercy of Christ, knowing that it saved us and knowing that it is enough for the spiritually sick all around us. We're going to finish this episode with a bit of a different word of prayer. If you resonate with Matthew's story in this episode, then why don't you pray this with me now? Jesus, thank you for your mercy that you reached out to me in my pitiful state and called for me to follow you. I do that now. 
I put up the closed sign in the booth of my sellout life, and I choose to follow you. I open my life to you from here on in, and nothing will ever be off limits. Amen. And perhaps if you resonated with the Pharisee story, why don't you pray like this? Jesus, forgive me for ever criticizing what you do in the lives of others. Help me to find life again in my faith and to know and live out the virtue of mercy. I choose mercy, not sacrifice, in all that I do, for this is clearly what you desire of me. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. To stay in touch, like our devotions in the Deep End Facebook page and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I look forward to catching up next time.